Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenny.org. Today is Saturday, May 25th, 2019. This program is being pre-recorded for publication at Christagenia tomorrow, I believe, Sunday, May 26th. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is Bible Basics Part 11 with Sven Longshanks and... Today, we hope to discuss the basis of Christianity found in the books of the prophets. You cannot be a New Testament Christian when huge portions of the New Testament are based upon the Old Testament and the prophets which Jesus Christ himself had said that he came to fulfill. If you don't understand the prophecies which Christ came to fulfill, you don't understand Christianity. Hello, Sven Longshanks. Thank you for being here. Hi, Bill. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to be here. Glad to, uh, we're going to get into some of the uh, prophecies today. And I I did mention last week that it it might be worth talking a little bit about the early church. And although that's not really a part of the Bible, I've been reading up on Bede and his and his history of of uh, England, the ecclesiastical history of England, and there was one part in that which I thought was well, a couple of parts really that I thought was relevant. Uh, and the the the, uh, the British Church are having a debate with the with the Roman Church, and the Roman Church are, are basically saying that the the British Church are following the wrong date for Easter, and they acknowledge that the British Church. Uh, has far more ancient traditions than the Roman Church that they've been following Christianity for so much longer. They've got a, a whole structure of the church there. And when they're actually arguing about Easter, it comes out that the tradition that the British Church is following came from St. John, the Blessed Disciple. So it's totally different to the tradition that uh, that, that Rome had. But St. John, the Blessed Disciple, is the one that uh, Mary, Magda- Ma- uh, Mary, the Mother of Christ, was entrusted to and the traditions are in Britain that Mary came to Britain with Joseph of Arimathea. And people have always said, well, Mary was given to St. John. So, you know, how come it's Joseph of Arimathea that actually had her later on and, and, and brought her to Britain? And I just thought the fact that the, the, the traditions apparently came from St. John, then that tends to add more weight to Joseph of Arimathea being, being the vector by which Christianity was passed to Britain just because the British people were following the traditions of St. John and, and the Roman Church acknowledged this. Uh, and that's why the tradition was completely different. That's why they had a different date for date for Easter. And it just seemed to me to, to add weight to this to this story because that's, you know, how, how else could St. John's teachings get to Britain? Somebody must have brought them to Britain other than St. John. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea is, the, is supposedly the person that brought them to Britain, and he also supposedly brought Mary with him. And if he brought Mary with him, obviously he would have had something to do with Saint John, the blessed, blessed uh, disciple. So it just seemed to, that it adds weight to this to this story to me. There's also bits in there where um, the Pope says that they, the uh, the new Anglo-Saxon Christians should not destroy the the old holy places. They should just re-sanctify them to Christ, which sort of destroys this 
pagan idea that um, Christianity was destroyed, destroying all these ancient pagan places. So, so that's untrue. And all the all the Anglo-Saxon wise men and the the pagan priests they come out to debate Christianity with uh, the the new missionaries for Christianity, and they decide that it's it, it's a better way to follow than what they have been following. So it wasn't uh, forced on them by the sword at all. It's just, just interesting because Christianity first came to Britain, uh, apparently it first came to Britain in the first century. And the first king to uh, pronounce himself Christian and to pronounce the nation Christian was in about 170 AD. And the whole nation had to agree to that. It, it wasn't forced upon them in any way. In actual fact, when uh, they're having these debates with uh, the Roman church, which was brought by Augustine to the Saxons, um, they have this debate. And then the, the British priest says, well, now I'll have to go back because we have to have a unanimous assent from all the people to make any changes in our religious ideas which is a tradition that obviously went right back to the first century and the Druids themselves, it would have had to have been a unanimous decision that they were then going to be Christian for the nation to then announce themselves Christian. So there's, there's, there's proof in this, this book from Bede that bears out the, the history that is sort of shrouded in mystery from the first and the second century. But it refutes well, well, a lot right. of pagan yeah, stuff. You know, I, I don't like to get caught up in the traditions as to how um, Christianity arrived in Britain, I'm not going to poke holes in them. But to me, it's not really important how it arrived. What's important is that Christianity, that there is solid, firm um, evidence, historical evidence that Christianity was in Britain in the first century. There is even more um, substantial evidence that there was a Christian, at least one Christian kingdom in Britain by 160 AD or thereabouts. And that is even admitted in early Roman Catholic Church documents that Christianity was in Britain long before Rome tolerated Christianity with the edict in, of, of Constantine, the, the edict of toleration, which is what, about maybe 310 or 311 AD? So Christianity in Britain was, was firmly established long before Rome tolerated Christianity. And there was a different church that was not a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox church long established in Britain before the, those modern institutions, we could call the Roman Catholic Church a relatively modern institution, had, had even developed. Bede seemed to, um, he seemed to be fixated on the difference in the Easter date. And the Roman Catholics do not celebrate Easter on the correct date. They're wrong because they follow the Jews and the Jewish calendar is wrong. The Jewish calendar is not the Hebrew calendar by any means. What we even see um, evidence for that in the New Testament itself. But that being said, Christianity had spread throughout many points in Europe before the Roman Catholic Church was organized and before the Roman Catholic Church 
gained control of Christianity in Europe, which really didn't happen even in, in, in Britain didn't happen until the 13th century when the, the original British church was finally, um, purposely stamped out by the Roman Catholics. I believe that was the 13th century that that finally happened. And there was an, an independent church in Britain for all that time. Yeah, they admitted that uh, they were that what they they did follow exactly the same scriptures, and the only criticism they they could actually make of the British Church, and this was in the in the sixth century, the only criticism they could make of it was that they didn't follow the Roman traditions, but they were absolutely scrupulous about following exactly the same scriptures, and it it did continue, and but they they did originally they did give in, and they did start following the same. Uh, the same date for Easter, and they also did start baptizing because they didn't they didn't baptize either. And this was in the in the sixth century, and this was the tradition that they got from Saint John. And then I think in about the ninth and the tenth century, they they all amalgamated together. And then obviously in the eleventh century, you get you get the schism between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox, and and the Celtic Church by then had been absorbed into the greater British Church. And that's the sort of history of it, as, as far as I'm aware. But they followed the same, exactly the same scriptures. That's the important thing. They followed exactly the same scriptures, and that was all they were following. They didn't have these traditions that the Roman Catholic Church did. And that was the only thing that the Roman Catholic Church could, or, or the, the Roman Church at the time, I should say, because it wasn't properly Roman Catholic until 1060. But that was the only, only criticism they could make, is that they had a different date for Easter, and they didn't baptize. But so obviously what they were doing is following the Christian law, and interpreting the the prophecies to refer to themselves and being the sort of Christian that, that we would say Christians should be today. Well, well th this, th this conversation, I could go down a lot of different paths, but let me try to focus on what's important. And, and that's this word Catholic. That the, we, we see this word Catholic all the time in bead, and a lot of people assume it means universal. But when you go back to the earliest Christian writers, the word Catholic has a completely different meaning. In the second century and in the third century, in the writings of Christians like Origen and Tertullian or Irenaeus or whoever used this word Catholic at that early time, it had a totally different meaning than it does today. Today, everybody insists that Catholic means universal, and, and they are only repeating 1,400-year-old propaganda, but that's not the way it originally was. The, the word Catholic, it, it comes from two Greek words, kata, meaning down, and holos, meaning whole. It's the word that we get our English word whole from, and Catholic means down whole. And the early Christian writers that identified themselves as Catholic explained exactly why. They explained what Catholic meant because they called themselves Catholic for the fact that they accepted both the Old Testament and the New Testament as the Word of God, as Scripture. And they were Catholic for that reason, in opposition to two other groups. The two other groups were, 
first the Jews, who rejected Christ and the entire New Testament. So they were Catholic, meaning they accepted the whole faith, believing both Testaments to be the word of God, and as opposed to the Jews, who only accepted the Old Testament. And the second group were the Marcionites and other heretics who rejected the Old Testament and only accepted the New Testament. And Marcion not only rejected the Old Testament, but he went so far as to make his own versions of New Testament scriptures that cut out all the references to the Old Testament. So he was basically forming his own cult based on just some of the sayings of Jesus and, and a couple of other things and rejecting the entire basis of Christianity, which is found in the Old Testament. The, the modern churches, these modern Christians that claim to be New Testament Christians are really following the heresy of Marcion from the second century AD. And the Catholics were Catholic because they accepted both testaments as the word of God. And, and we can sit and, and explain why that's important all day long. And, and today it is what we're probably, that, that's our main purpose here today. So we're probably just going to scratch the purpose that, I'm sorry, scratch the surface in the next hour. You really wouldn't so. have a lot left, would you? I mean, if, if you removed all the references to the Old Testament in, in the New Testament, like Marcion did, you, I think you'd only have a couple of pages left. Because it's Yeah, all, you might have only John 3.16 left. And, <laughs> and that's the only verse most modern Christians know. <laughs> it's all, it, it's and, all and, intertwined. That's what makes it holy, is the fact that it, it all fits together. If you take that out, you take the Old Testament out from it, then what, what have you got? You, have, you haven't got anything that's holy anymore. You've, you, you've just got um, something which doesn't have any, any history to it, any foundation to it. No proof to it. And, and most Christians despise it because they really don't understand it, but they don't understand it because they don't study it. It, it's it's that simple. It it just needs to be studied. But the it's the interest of modern churches that you do not understand the scriptures, so that you keep looking to them as the authorities. But they don't teach the scriptures. They don't teach anything like the scriptures. They don't teach anything like true Christianity. That they're just engaged in pop culture and, and using Christianity to control you the same way that the Jews used Judaism to control the people back in the first century. And, and, when Christ, and this was the theme of my program last night, when, when Christ challenged their moral basis that they wanted to kill him. And, and today the churches have no true moral basis. Now they're accepting every, every immorality. The only way they can do that is by ignoring the ignoring the Old Testament completely, and you get people right. Say, ignore you, the Old Testament completely and ignore most of the New Testament passages that refer to the Old Testament, which is three quarters of the New Testament. 
You get uh, you get but people that say, well, you, you shouldn't follow the Old Testament. Oh, oh, that's Jewish or whatever. But but when you actually look at the Old Testament, that that's got all the really good stuff in it. That that's got all the foundation. Like no sodomy, no race mixing. That sets up the the political scene. That's the way that a state should be run. How a nation should be run. It's more of the political side of it and all the prophecies. And then you get the the New Testament, which is the fulfillment of the prophecies. And it doesn't have all the uh, the no, so much of the no race mixing, no sodomy, no usury in the New Testament, because it's already been covered in the Old Testament. So you've got to have that there. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, some of it is in the New Testament, but you're you're right. It's already covered in the Old Testament, and Christ said that He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So if you don't understand what it says in the law. And the prophets, you don't understand what Christ came to fulfill. You don't really understand Christ or his purpose. So how could you call yourself a Christian? You have to start with the law and the prophets. The word Catholic, when it was first used, was a good word. Where it was first applied in its original meaning it's a very good and very important word for us to understand. You can't be a New Testament Christian when those New Testament writers had quoted the Old Testament and referred to the promises in the Old Testament time and time and time again. In, in Luke chapter 1, what we see a profession and, and Luke's gospel is based on this, and, and this profession comes out of the mouth of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, but it, it's, it predicates the, the rest of Luke's gospel. And, and, and Zechariah said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And go to say, save from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. So the entire New Testament is, is basically based on that outline. And, and the whole rest of the New Testament's uh, we could choose out passages from the whole rest of the New Testament, from the epistles of Paul, from the revelation of Christ, from the epistles of Peter and James, and we can prove that that, that is the correct way to look at the New Testament. If you go to Acts chapter 26 and, and verses 6 and 7, and I've quoted this before in this series, and Acts chapter 26, Paul is standing before Herod Agrippa II. And Herod Agrippa II is hearing Paul's case, mostly out of curiosity, because Paul had, being a Roman citizen, had already appealed to Caesar, as was his right. Then Herod Agrippa II had no um, power to make a decision in his case. But Paul is nevertheless defending himself before Herod Agrippa II, and he said, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise, that same promise all the way back there in Luke chapter one. Now, Paul is making this defense 
in 59 or 60 AD, just before he sent to Rome. This is almost 30 years after the crucifixion. This is at the end of Paul's ministry, after he had been bringing the gospel to Europe for 25 years. And he, he makes this statement. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. That was the profession of Paul. What is the promise to the 12 tribes? You can go through every one of those ancient prophets. You could go through the entire book of Genesis and, and from the time of the call of Abraham all the way to the last verse of, of Malachi, the last biblical prophet, and you won't find a single word where Yahweh God is planning on saving Gentiles or people of, of other nations and races outside of those 12 tribes. Not one word. There are no such promises of Jesus coming to save everybody. There are no such promises of Jesus coming to save Negroes or Chinamen or Indians. He's only the savior of those 12 tribes. And that message is consistent throughout the scripture. So Christianity should really mean nothing to you unless you understand that you are a member of one of those 12 tribes. To understand that, we have to go through all of the prophets and ancient history. But all of the books of the prophets and ancient history proves our position. It proves the Christian identity position Verse after verse and passage after passage, chapter after chapter, one after another after another, we can prove our position. Take you know, the book of Isaiah. Let me just say something I'm here, sorry. Bill. Let me just say something here. I mean, a lot of the time I get people trying to refute Christian identity and they'll come in the chat room or they'll leave uh, comments. I mean, sometimes people will leave comments on uh, Dennis Wise's video channel and they'll put up a, a Bible verse that they think, ah, oh, this is a gotcha. And, and this refutes the Christian identity message. And every yeah, time right. I get like one of these. Like we missed that one. Yeah. Like we missed yeah. one. That's a we joke. These, these, uh, <laughs> non-Christian scholars to show us them. But basically, whenever I find that you, you look at this verse, all you have to do is look at the verses around that. And every single time you will find that there is a Christian identity message in the verses that are around that, that actually put the verse that's just been put to you in context. And it puts it in the Christian identity and context. Exactly. And, and context is so important when you're reading anything. I mean, you could probably steal one of a dozen lines from Mein Kampf to prove that Hitler was a Marxist or Hitler was a capitalist or anything you want to make him to be a Buddhist. If you want to remove a single sentence or two sentences from the context in which they were written, you could prove anything about anybody. But that doesn't make it true. 
when you actually read the entire chapter or the entire paragraph, you'll find that it's not true quite often. It, it's not true. When you read the entire work, you find that it's not true, that it's not correct to take one line or one verse to try to prove something out of the Bible if it's not in the entire context of the Bible. That passage I just read in Acts Acts chapter 26, I could verify that that reflects Paul's teachings in almost every single one of his epistles. We could walk through Romans, we could walk through 1 Corinthians or Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians, and I could verify that that was indeed Paul's consistent attitude throughout all of his epistles. And not take, of course you could take one line. Oh, oh, over here he said all men. See, it's for everybody. Well, that's not what he meant by all men over there. He didn't have Chinese people in mind when he was writing that. They weren't part of his world. They had no connection to these 12 tribes. It, it's, it, it's a matter of whether or not you really want to obey the context in which something was written, or if you just want to be a clown and, and take John 3.16 and run with it, because it's the whole world. But that word world didn't mean what it does to us today. It didn't mean what it does to us today in 1611. And it certainly didn't mean what it does to us today in, when Paul wrote Cosmos, because he didn't even know the word world. He didn't use that word. If you go to Jeremiah, if you go to Jeremiah chapter two, and, and it's important to understand when these things were written. Jeremiah started writing probably about 620 something BC. And he continued to write until just after the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians and its complete destruction about 586 BC. Now, the Northern Kingdom, 90% of the people of the Northern Kingdom were already taken into, they were either dead or they were taken into Assyrian captivity or they fled by sea during the Assyrian invasions. The Assyrian invasions began in Palestine itself, probably about 745 BC, when the first of the Israelites were taken captive by the Assyrians. And those invasions didn't end until um, Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal was the last great Assyrian king and he ruled in the middle of the 7th century. And I don't remember the exact dates. He may have ruled Assyria until 650-something um, or 640-something B.C. And the last of the great captivities of Israel and invasions of Israel ended in his time. But the latest of the invasions that's mentioned explicitly in Scripture is during the time of Esar Hadan around 676 BC. 
Esar Hadan, I think, ruled this area from 681 to 676. So all of the Israelites are gone by the time of Jeremiah, except for a few pockets of them that survived here and there. Some of them became later known as Samaritans. Well, most of them were folded into the general population of Canaanites in later times anyway. But, and, and they were never re-included in, in scripture for the most part. There, there were still some Phoenicians, there were still some Phoenicians on the island of Tyre, and they were Israelites, but they're not being addressed here in Jeremiah chapter two. Jeremiah chapter two is written um, at least 50 years after the last of the great deportations and captivities of the Israelites, and 120 years after they began, a hundred years after the fall of Samaria at, at the time of um, Sargon II in 721 BC. So Israel is gone when Jeremiah is writing. And Jeremiah says in chapter two, moreover, the word of the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, because it's really only the inhabitants of Jerusalem that are left in the land saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown, relating to the earliest history of Israel and Judah. And then in verse 3, it says, Israel was holiness unto the Lord, speaking about those people that were taken away, and the first fruits of all his increase, all that devour him shall offend. All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. So we have Israel in the Assyrian captivity. And Yahweh is saying that anyone who devours Israel, he is going to have an issue with. Then hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. This is whether or not they've been taken into captivity. That this is that these people are long gone. A little further on, we read in in Jeremiah chapter three, in verse twelve. And, and I'll start with verse um, verse eleven. Jeremiah is making a um, an allegory of Israel and Judah being sisters, and one of them sinning, but Judah sinning, but Judah's still there, and and Israel sinned, and Israel's been put away, right? And and I'll start with verse ten. And yet, for all this. For everything that Jer for everything that the people of Jerusalem had seen happen to Israel, and yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, saith the Lord, meaning that the people of Judah that are left after Israel was taken away, that they're still not repenting, even though they saw what happened to Israel. And it continues in verse 11. And the Lord said unto me, the backsliding Israel has justified herself more than Judah. So it says, go and proclaim these words toward the north. 
toward the north and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you. Where is Israel when they were taken away into Assyrian captivity? They were in the north. And then we see in verse 14, Turn, O backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So God's relationship with these people of Israel that were taken off into Assyrian captivity never ends. Instead, there are promises of reconciliation. But this is just one simple example. These promises of reconciliation are the entire fabric of the biblical prophets. The entire fabric. All throughout these prophets. And God is only dealing with these people of Israel. If you go to Isaiah, you know, the Jews love to say that there are two different Isaiahs. That the Isaiah of chapter 41 and those last 25 chapters or 26 chapters is a different Isaiah from the first 40 chapters. The Jews love to say that, but they're lying. It's bullshit. What we have is we have the same prophet Isaiah writing from two different perspectives. The first 40 chapters of Isaiah, for the most part, are dealing with the children of Israel in Palestine. Isaiah began writing at around the same time that the Assyrians had become had started coming into Palestine and oppressing the Israelites. And there's a long history before this that we have to understand. The ancient kingdom of Israel extended its power and influence all the way to, it's right in the Bible, all the way to Hamath in far northern Syria. But they actually had controlled, had had subject states under their, um, under their, under tribute to the kings of Israel and Judah. There were subject states all throughout northern Syria, all the way to the Euphrates River. This is all evident in scripture that they held these other states subject all the way to the the kingdom of the Medes and, and the borders of Assyria. So when Assyria started to rise as an empire and threaten um, the, the influence of the kingdom of Israel in the north, we see um, in, in the revival of Jeroboam II, we see that Jeroboam had regained um, Hamath and the coast of Syria for Israel. Why? Because the Assyrians took them away. And this is back in, in the 8th century, in, in the 9th century B.C., a hundred, a hundred years before the deportations and captivities of Israel began. It was a, a process of about 150 years for Assyria to rise as an empire, to conquer those subject states that were subject to the kingdom of Israel, and to diminish the, the king of Israel's power in the north 
before they invaded Israel itself. And the book of Jonah is all about, the, the little prophecy of Jonah is all about this and happened during that time that Assyria was rising to power. Jonah is probably the earliest prophet. So Isaiah starts writing at about the time that the Assyrians actually start invading Israel itself. And Isaiah is telling these people of Israel that they are going to go into captivity. And this process begins right around the time that Isaiah is warning the people that this is going to happen, that they're going into Assyrian captivity and they're going into captivity for their sin. But Isaiah, throughout those 40 chapters, is still promising that after their captivity, they will ultimately be reconciled to God. The last 26 chapters of Isaiah, from perhaps chapter 41 forward, is written from a different perspective. It's written from the perspective, and Isaiah wrote for a long time. Isaiah start, Isaiah wrote for over 40 years, and this is evident because the historical evidence is in his writing that he he actually had had started his his books in in the times of Uzziah and Jotham and and Ahaz in in the times of Uzziah which is 40 years before Hezekiah and he wrote until the time of Hezekiah and Hezekiah ruled until about 699 or 698 BC so the last 26 chapters of Isaiah are from the perspective that Israel is already in captivity. They're already taken off into Assyrian captivity, and they are already fleeing to the north through the Caucasus Mountains and around the Black Sea to get away from the Assyrians, to escape the Assyrians, as they were prophesied to do. So what do we read in Isaiah chapter 41? Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. And that's speaking to Israel in captivity. And even though Israel has been destroyed by now, and the children of Israel are off in Mesopotamia and the cities of the Medes and what we know today as Armenia and, and around the Black Sea where the Assyrians had resettled them for the most part because some of them were resettled in, in the northeast around the other side of the Caspian Sea. Well, well, Isaiah is addressing them. That word islands really just means coastlands. It doesn't specifically mean island as we know it. And it, it's the coast, the islands, the shore the shore region, and, and that's where the Israelites are, and that's where Isaiah is addressing them, beginning Isaiah chapter 41. So it's not a different Isaiah, it's the same Isaiah from a different perspective. You know, the, uh, the Jews say that uh, they sawed Isaiah in half for having a bad mouth about Israel in the Talmud. That's what the Jews say about Isaiah. Well, well, that's the Talmud. You know, the, the, the New Testament, in the New Testament, Christ 
puts the blame on the race of Cain for the murder of the prophets. Now, the Bible doesn't really tell us the end of any of the prophets. These books of prophecy are books that the prophets wrote that survived after the prophets died. So none of the deaths of the prophets are really recorded in the scripture. Jeremiah's death isn't recorded at the end of Jeremiah. The only prophets whose deaths are recorded are the, the early prophets of Israel. Moses, his death is recorded, right? And, and, and we know about Joshua's death. We know about um, David's death. But because that was, the, the, um, that was the time when Israel was a, a, a kingdom that carried on its chronicles, where all of these biblical prophets, this is the end of that kingdom history. That this is um, as the nation was falling apart, and after these prophets, the history, the chronicles, they weren't kept because Israel and Judah were destroyed. But the books that the prophets wrote were kept. We just don't know about their real ends, how they really died. However, if the Talmud wrote that about Isaiah, and I have heard that account before, that should show right away the contempt that the Jews as a people have for their, that the history that they claim is theirs that really isn't theirs because they are bastards. Now, that's the point, because sometimes but, people will criticize, you know, they'll, they'll criticize, they want to criticize the Jews, and then they'll use the book of Isaiah to, to, to criticize the Jews with. And you think, well, well, the, the Jews, you know, they're, they're against that book. They, they're against that prophet. They say they sawed him in half. They're nothing to do with it. But that's a criticism that people sometimes try to make. They try, sometimes try to take verses from Isaiah out of context and attribute them to the Jews. And, and that's totally we, the opposite of the truth. If we read Jeremiah chapter 2 especially, if we read the entire chapter and have a good examination of the poetic language that Jeremiah uses, Jeremiah is condemning the people of Jerusalem for their race mixing with the Canaanites because that's what they did. A lot of the nobles of Israel in Jerusalem had race mixed with the Canaanites. And if we go to um, Ezekiel, Ezekiel is actually contemporary with Jeremiah. The two men were writing about the same subjects around the same time, but they weren't colluding. They didn't really know each other that they were both prophets from around the same time who wrote totally separate works and often said, and, and they treated different top, different subjects, but they often said the very same things in very different language. And, and Ezekiel chapter 16, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother was a Hittite. 
Now, the Amorites and the, and the Hittites are different branches of the Canaanites. And the illustration Ezekiel makes there is that these people in Jerusalem had been mixing with the Amorites and the Hittites. And that was going on. When you read the historical portions of scripture, you will see that that was what was going on. And when you go back to Jeremiah, you will find that the prophet Jeremiah blames the iniquity in Judah and in Israel on the race mixing. And so does Hosea. And the purpose of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities was to separate the children of Israel from the race mixing and from the race mixers. That was the purpose to remove that iniquity. That was the express purpose in many passages of prophecy that's explained, including Jeremiah chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 16. So, and, and it's what well, we could walk all through Ezekiel and see that message or Jeremiah and see that message in, in many places. That was the purpose. As it says in Amos, another place where we see it, um, God tells the children of Israel that he will sift them as corn or grain through a sieve. And, and that's what had to be done in order to separate them from these Canaanites. Now, the Jews, and we, we've spoken about this before, and, and this is very demonstrable in history and scripture. The Jews are the descendants of the Canaanites and, and the Edomites who had race mixed with the people of Judah. Not all of Judah was race mixed. In fact, most of Judah was actually taken into Assyrian captivity along with Israel. And that can be found in both the biblical records and in the Assyrian inscriptions that had been dug out of the ground, this entire collections of Assyrian and Babylonian inscriptions that verify all of the history in the Bible of the deportations of the captivities of the Assyrians, of the Israelites and, and Judahites in Assyria and Babylon. All of this can be substantiated in ancient inscriptions. I did a whole series on the prophecy of Amos where I actually cited dozens and dozens of those inscriptions to prove that this is all historically verifiable and historically true. The children of Israel were taken to the north and resettled along the Araxes River in the cities of the Medes in northern Mesopotamia, um, in the land that we now know as Armenia, and some of them in Cassiphia, which is on the Caspian Sea, and in the land that later became known as the land of the Parthians, and all the way east as far as Sogdiana and Bactriana. And Herodotus discusses all of those people as Scythians and Herodotus, Strabo, Diodorus Siculus, 
we can see that they are all the same people and they're called Scythians. In Isaiah chapter 10 and, and Isaiah chapter 14, there are promises to the children of Israel as they're being um, taken into captivity that they will destroy the people that took them into captivity. And it's speaking expressly of Babylon and of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians. So the captivities of the children of Israel end before 650 BC. And around 612 BC, Nineveh and the cities of the Assyrians are destroyed by a coalition of Persians, Babylonians, and Scythians, and Chimerians, because sometimes the Scythians are called Chimerians. And those Scythians and those Chimerians are the children of Israel who were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. So we see that the prophecy in Isaiah is exactly true, happened exactly as Isaiah said it would, only if we understand that the Scythians and the Chimerians are the Israelites. And that could be proven by the ancient inscriptions and by the epistle of Paul to the Galatians and by many other things subsequent in history and scripture. If you don't understand the prophets, if you don't understand the ancient history and what really happened to these Israelites, you're never going to understand the New Testament because the New Testament not only refers to these things, but substantiates them and, and tells us they're true. The letters of Paul tell us that Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and help to prove that the things those prophets said are true. Mainstream Christians are missing all of the richness of Christian truth because they reject Christian identity. That um, coalition yeah. that you were saying there, Bill, that coalition there of the, of the Medes, the Scythians, and the Babylonians, I think you were saying there, were, were they all descended from Shem as well? Wasn't the Persian, wasn't Elam one of them, one of the sons of Shem? Something to do with it? Well, well the, Persians, the Persians are Elam, and this is verifiable in the Bible and in um, the ancient histories. Strabo of Cappadocia explains that the, the main district of Persia is Elamaz, he called it, Elamaz. And Elamaz is simply Elam in the scripture. So in the scripture, wherever you see the word Persia, the Hebrew word is Elam, and these Elamites, which the we call Persians in later history, these who the Greeks even called Persians, that these Elamites had fulfilled in, in the historical facts everything that the prophets say they would do in the prophecies of Scripture. So that the Persians are Elam and the Elamites are a Semitic people. And the Dan and Greeks, 
the Ionian Greeks understood. Now, the Ionian Greeks are Japethites, and the Medes are Japethites. But the Ionian Greeks, when they wrote about the Danan Greeks, understood that the Danan Greeks, who were actually the, the Hebrew tribe of Dan, were related to the Elamites, to the Persians. And they say that in their own mythology. They understood that connection. And in the Bible, they are related. They're both Semites. They're both from Shem, where the Medes and the Ionians are from Japheth. The Assyrians are from Shem. The original Assyrians are from Asher, from the Shemites. And they spoke a related Semitic language. <laughs> and they were very much like the Israelites in, in many ways. They have a common history, a common mythology, except that we have to understand the perspectives between the Hebrew scriptures and the pagan perspective. Once we, once we understand the two perspectives properly, we can understand that a lot of the myths are the same, are saying essentially the same things from the opposite perspective. The battles of the gods and giants and, and the, the um, descent of certain races of men from, from the Anunnaki or the, the fallen ones or, or however you want to look at it. The mythology also helps to prove Christian identity to me because I understand both perspectives and, and can speak about things and, and reconcile them. In, in, in my own chain of thought, but which you, you have to have a good background reading um, all of the available literature in, in order to be able to see that. I can't make people see that. We went into that quite a bit, I think, in, um, in one yeah, of the earlier episodes. Yeah, we may have discussed that. It, it's a tangent, a digression. We probably did already discuss that. I don't remember. I don't remember everything we said in this series. <laughs> Is there a good book that you could recommend that people could could have a read of that? Is it uh, Near Eastern Myths or something? Uh, a, a good book on it? I can't well, think of the exact. Yeah, title. one good book that I use all the time and I cite all the time because it has a very um, comprehensive. I, I mean, it's not complete by any means because it's only one book. I actually have gone to the University of Chicago that has a Near Eastern Studies section, ASOR, the American School of Oriental Research. And on their website, they have hundreds of books of inscriptions available, of translated inscriptions, things that scholars have been working on for at least 150 years now. On, on deciphering and translating these inscriptions. ASOR, that the um, University of Chicago, I believe, and it's the American School of Oriental Research, you can download um, PDF files of hundreds of books of, of inscriptions with all of the ancient um, Sumerian and, and Babylonian and Assyrian myths and historical inscriptions. It, it's It'll keep you reading for a long, long time. And even I've only scratched the surface on, on a lot of these things. But one good book, if you could only read one book, and it's a fat one, 
but ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament is the entire title of the book. It was edited. The, the edition I have was the third edition published in 1969 by Princeton University and edited by James Pritchard. So that, that is that they chose out a collection of ancient inscriptions from the Hittites, from the Egyptians, from the Assyrians, the Babylonians that were related to events in the Old Testament. Um, there's legal codes in there. Um, the Code of Hammurabi it is in there. That there are um, Egyptian creation myths, Assyrian creation myths. Um, you could read the competing creation myths, if you will. And it's important to read those. And it's important to understand those. Because in, in the Bible, you have a creation out of order, but you have a rebellion of fallen angels that the other races and paganism are attributed to. In the pagan creation myths, you have a creation out of chaos that, that was perpetrated by a serpent. The two go hand in hand. It's just different perspectives of the same story. Once you understand all of those things, it will help substantiate Christian scripture rather than, as the Jews often claim, disproving Christian scripture. Let, let's go to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea wrote at around the same time that Isaiah wrote, but Hosea didn't write for as long as Isaiah. He started around the same time, but didn't write as much and, and didn't write as long. And that there's a... Um, I might have Hosea chapter one in mind, actually. Hosea was told to go marry a whore and to have children with a whore. And that's because God looked at his own relationship with the children of Israel as a marriage relationship, but that Israel was playing a whore. Israel was playing the whore by mingling with these other people, worshiping their gods, intermarrying with them. So in Hosea, God was likening Israel to a whore, which the Israelites were. They were whoring on their God. They were cheating on their God, right? So Hosea was um, told to marry this whore, take a wife of a whore, and have a few kids with her. And the, the first kid was named Lo-Ami because the Israelites were, were not my, I'm sorry. The first kid was named Lo-Ruhama, which means no mercy because God wasn't going to have mercy on these children of Israel that were playing the whore. And the second kid, God told Hosea to, to name it Lo-Ami which means not my people because he was disowning the Israelites. So after Hosea had lo Ruhama, no mercy, and lo Ami, or not my people, then God said, 
call his name Lo Ami, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. Now, that situation happened, that began as the children of Israel were being taken off into captivity, that, that Yahweh disowned them. So they were no longer his people. And then it says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. This is after he disowned them that this is being spoken. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, ye are not my people, there it shall be said to them, ye are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows, like sowing seed, God sows. So Peter quoted this in his first epistle. Paul quoted this in his epistle to the Romans. Because this is telling, in a nutshell, the story of the relationship between God and Israel. And the one head is Christ. You can And um, Peter Peter say, and Paul both cite this in their epistles in that context. You can just imagine Hosea calling out, you know, calling out those names. You are not my people, you know, shouting out after his kid and no mercy right. and no mercy. I mean, it's got quite a sense of humor right. to it, really. <laughs> Over and over and over again yeah. to make to make that example. So so Peter writes his epistle, and I, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna try to find this. I think it's in one Peter in chapter two. One Peter chapter two, from verse nine. I'm going to read, and. After speaking about Christ being the stone that the builders rejected, and that that goes all the way back to the time of Moses. That doesn't mean the Jews, okay? That's a prophecy from Isaiah that goes back to the time of Moses when the children of Israel were first disobedient and, and built the golden calf, right? But ye are, after speaking about Christ as the stone which the builders rejected, Peter says, and Peter's writing, and this can be proven, Peter's actually writing to the Christian assemblies of Anatolia, which Paul founded, okay? And, and that's right at the beginning of, of his epistle, who he's writing to. These people are not Jews that he's writing to. He's writing to the Christian assemblies that were originally founded by Paul. And I believe he's writing this epistle. It's hard to prove, but there is evidence for it. I believe he's writing this epistle because Paul had already been executed by the Romans. That, that's my gut instinct, right? And I've translated all these and I've studied these at great length. And, and, and that's what I feel. I can't prove that part. But Peter writes the second epistle very shortly after the first one and commends Paul's writing and says that they're little understood, but the people that don't understand them 
do so to their own hurt. Okay. So I, I have good reason for believing this. Peter writes and says, but you are a chosen, and the King James Version says generation, but the word is genos, meaning race. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. This is all the language all the way back from Exodus chapter 19 that was spoken of the children of Israel. It doesn't apply to anybody else. A peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness. When you go back and read Isaiah, the children of Israel, because they were put out of the land and taken into captivity, and because they were no longer God's people, they were called captives, and they were called the people who sat in darkness. Christ, in Luke chapter 4, says that he came to re bring recovery of sight to the blind, to, to call out the captives and them that sit in darkness. And he was quoting Isaiah. He was quoting Isaiah when he spoke those things. Isaiah chapters 58, Isaiah chapter 61. When he spoke those things in Luke chapter 4 and told the people of Nazareth, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Well, Peter's addressing these same Israelites who were taken off into darkness 800 years before this. 800 years before this epistle was written. Who he has, who called you out of darkness, speaking of God, into his marvelous light, Christ being the light of the world, which in time past were not a people. Like Hosea said, Lo, Ami, you are not my people, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. Lo me, Hosea, you are not my people, but in the place where it was said, you are not my people, there you will be called the sons of the living God. Peter is explaining the fulfillment of Hosea. And in the next line, which had not obtained mercy, go back to Hosea, Lo Ruhama, no mercy, the meaning of Lo Ruhama but now have obtained mercy because the children of Israel have reconciliation in Christ, as Paul says throughout his epistles. Peter is explaining to a chosen race, a peculiar people, and a holy nation the fulfillment of the words of Hosea, period. And Paul of Tarsus does the same exact thing, citing the same exact passage in his epistle to the Romans. How could you have a New Testament if you don't understand the prophets when, in fact, all of the promises of the New Testament are based on the promises of the prophets, and the New Testament tells us that over and over again. It tells us that. 
You can't have one without the other. You can't understand one without the other. It's not possible. I think the um, Judeo-Christians, I think they look at that and they say, oh, well, this, this <laughs> is that Christianity is supposed to be brought to people that are in prison and it's supposed to give hope to, to prisoners and, and criminals. That, that's Who the way that they, yeah. yeah, right, in prison. Of that's, course, that's they're the really they interpret it. <laughs> totally out of context. When, when really, I mean, it, it just shows you that these, these prophecies are written so many centuries before and, and this is what they applied to. And they miss that completely. That they, they don't understand. You don't, un okay. You, you really can't understand a damn thing unless you read the whole Bible all the way through. Unless you see all of the um, Old Testament symbolism and allegory that appears in the New Testament, and then read it again backwards and understand that in the prophets is a lot of allegorical language. And, oh, okay, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. Okay, why are Assyria and Egypt mentioned first? Why does it say in, in, in Hosea, Ephraim, Meaning the people of the people of the northern ten tribes were called Ephraim throughout Hosea. Ephraim is also like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. That's referring to the two captivities of the children of Israel, the first in Egypt, the second in Assyria. Why in, in Jeremiah chapter two? Why gaddest thou about so much to change thy way? Thou shalt also be ashamed of Egypt as thou wast ashamed of Assyria. What, what does it talk about? Um, blessed whom the Lord of hosts shall bless saying. This is Isaiah chapter 19 now, right? But let me start a little, a little sooner. In that day there shall be a highway, Isaiah chapter 19. In that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian shall come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the works of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. What is that referring to? I'll tell you exactly what it's referring to. There were people in the Egyptian captivity that never went to Israel. They left Egypt. They were Israelites who left Egypt. They went to Greece. They went to Italy. They went to Troy. They founded Troy. Diodorus Siculus, the first century BC, a hundred years before Christ, the first century BC historian explained all this in, I think it might be the 39th or 40th book of his Library of History, I've quoted it in, in several of my historical essays. These people are Egypt, and then you have Israel, and then you have Assyria. Who are these Assyrians? They're not Assyrians. Assyria is gone. 
Assyria was destroyed in 612 BC, and, and there were only remnants of Assyrians left after that time, who, for the most part, lost their identity as Assyrians. Today, you have Neo-Assyrians, who are not really Assyrians, who claim to be Assyrians in Iraq, but they're not really Assyrians. They're mixed-race bastards. Well, well, these Assyrians are not Assyrians. These Assyrians are the people taken into the Assyrian captivity. You have people taken into the Assyrian captivity. You have people that were in the Egyptian captivity that never went to Israel with Moses that settled in Europe, according to Diodorus Siculus, and we can also demonstrate that from Scripture. So you have people in Europe from the Egyptian captivity, you have people in Europe from the Assyrian captivity, and when I say Europe, I'm speaking of the wider sense of parts of Eurasia and Anatolia, and, and you have the people of Israel the Israelites of the circumcision who were white people related to them. And that's what Isaiah right there is prophesying. The New Testament period, the spread of Christianity, which had brought together all of those people under Christ. That's Isaiah chapter 20, chapter 19. But Judeo-Christians will read that. And they'll interpret that to say that the Jews in Palestine are going to build a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Get the hell out of here. That's not what it's saying. <laughs> oh, the Jews are building a new highway. It's funded by American taxpayers. It's going to go all the way to, to Iraq. Yeah, right. Okay. That, that's um, Satan's deception. <sighs> Isaiah 19 was what was actually what was actually fulfilled in the spread of Christianity in Europe. That's when it was really fulfilled. That there's um I, I I don't know there's probably a lot of other places we could go but let's go to Jeremiah chapter chapter 31 and and at the beginning of Jeremiah chapter 31 at the same time, saith the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Now, if you compare the King James Version and the Septuagint, the chapters in Jeremiah are actually pretty much out of order as they appear in the King James Version. They're mixed up. And this happened to parts of Ezekiel and Daniel as well. And um, Hebrew scholars even understand this, but they won't change the order of the chapters from the traditional. Well, someday I hope to do a commentary on Jeremiah and repair the order of the chapters, which isn't very difficult to do. But Jeremiah is writing this around the time of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and Jeremiah 31 should be closer to the end of his book than it is in the King James Version. At the same time, saith the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. Those 12 tribes that Paul talked about in Acts chapter 26. Those 12 tribes that James wrote his epistle to. James's epistle is written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. Thus saith the Lord, 
the people which were left of the sword. That means the people that were not killed by the Assyrians found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, Israel is described in their captivity as a people in the wilderness. And that's also the same allegory that's used by John in the Revelation, in Revelation chapter 12, in Revelation chapter 17, where he sees a woman in the wilderness. And at first, in Revelation chapter 12, it's a virgin with the 12 stars representing the 12 tribes that flees to the wilderness to receive rest, to be nourished for 1260 years. That's the same people Jeremiah is talking about in Jeremiah 31, using the same poetic description. The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. Mercy is being promised to those people here in the in, in the, the beginning of Jeremiah chapter 31, and hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations. The first time that the children of Israel are addressed as nations is in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So quite often where the Bible discusses nations, it really means, if you read the entire context, the nations of the children of Israel. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. In other words, God redeems the children of Israel. He's promising here redemption. He's saying it as if it was already done. He's promising redemption for the Israelites from the hand of him that was stronger. And when you go back to that promise in, in Luke chapter 1, that the New Testament is predicated upon, we see the appeal that we should be saved from our enemies. In the words of Zechariah that we began this discussion with. When we keep going through Jeremiah chapter 31, we hear that the again and again, the same promises of reconciliation with these people of Israel, with Ephraim, who had already been taken into captivity for, by this time, at least 150 years or 130 years. And we keep going and we keep going un until we get to um, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 27. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. That's a punishment. And that's what we're suffering right now. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant. In those days they shall say, no more, the fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. There's only, that, that sour grape is a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the first time we see that 
reference in scripture. And the children's teeth are set on edge, meaning that the children are the products of the fathers eating sour grapes. That's about race mixing. And, and I, I, I have already explained that in, in papers on, on Christogenia, both myself and Clifton Emma Heiser. And it's too much of a digression here, but it's related to the problem with the house of Israel and the house of Judah being sown with the seed of man and the seed of beast, because these other races of people are not men. They are not Adam. Behold, and after that, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, the new covenant is already offered in Christ, but we have never lived under it. If you really want to talk about and examine the contents of the new covenant, we have that promise, but we still haven't been reconciled because we're still living under beast governments and the children of Israel were promised that they were going to be punished for a fixed period of time. And that's the next prophet that we have to visit is the prophet Daniel, right? So we're still in that period of punishment. So we have a new covenant, but we're looking forward to the culmination, to its fulfillment. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. But this is the covenant, and I'm skipping a little, but this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is describing a long process, and we are going through the fulfillment of this process. But we face many challenges along the way that are described in other prophecies. However, this new covenant, this is, there are only two explicit mentions of a new covenant in the prophets. This passage of Jeremiah and another passage in Ezekiel. And both times, the new covenant is going to be made explicitly with the children of Israel, here with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Paul referred to this, he alluded to this in his epistle to the Romans. He referred to this, he quoted this verbatim in his epistle to the Hebrews. This is the new covenant in Christ it's made explicitly with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and with nobody else. There's nothing here about Gentiles. The only thing in this part of Jeremiah which mentions other nations is this in Jeremiah chapter 30. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee speaking to the children of Israel. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. We're still going through that period of punishment. 
caused by the sin of our most ancient ancestors. We're Christians, but we look forward to the culmination of the new covenant. We don't have it yet. Not until the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, which is when all those nations are going to be made a full end of, according to the revelation of Christ. Are you still with us? Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just, I'm just quite amazed by the way, all the way that it fits in. I, mean, I, I had thought that uh, when it was saying that the the law was going to be written in their hearts, that um, you know, we had we had had that, and and that was you know the, the way that we 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 know inst- instinctively, intuitively between right and and wrong. And I was thought that well, since well, the advent we of Christ, we had that. We do have it. We do have it, but we're still under the control of these world empires and, and, and the princes of this world and, and the synagogue of Satan, we're still under their control, even though we, we do. And Paul commended the Romans for having the law written in their hearts in Romans chapter two, because the Romans were also a group of ancient descended from a group of ancient Israelites, the Trojans. So Paul commended the Romans for that. So it's true to a degree, but the entire new covenant is not fulfilled. And we are not under this new covenant until Revelation chapter 19 and the marriage supper of the Lamb, when we are finally delivered from our enemies. But in the meantime, we're under this, this, this world beast and these world empires. And we're still technically in captivity yeah that's what i was thinking we have like a third captivity like a third captivity that that we're in you got the egyptian one the assyrian one and and now we're in a third we're actually we're actually still in the assyrian captivity we're still there uh oh okay let's go to daniel chapter two and and there's two chapters in daniel that are pertinent to understanding this and these two chapters, and we won't do it here, but these two chapters um, coincide with everything said in the Revelation very, very well, and, and it, it all interlocks. You can't really understand anything without understanding ancient history. You can't understand the, the Revelation without understanding these chapters of Daniel, and you can't understand um, everything in these chapters of Daniel without understanding the revelation. It, it all fits in. It all interlocks. Um, the understanding of one is wholly dependent upon the understanding of the other. So, so in, um, in Daniel chapter two, what we see an image of a beast and am I in Daniel too? I believe so. Yes. We see an image of a beast and Daniel is speaking to the book of Nezar, who is the king of Babylon. The book of Nezar ascended the throne of Babylon in 605, I believe, or 606 BC. So Daniel sees the book of Nezar has this dream. And Daniel is explaining it to him. And 
The explanation starts in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. O king, behold, thou sawest a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and of clay and broke them to pieces. Now, later on, the book of, the book of Nezo was told by Daniel that he was the head of gold and that these other parts of this image are kings that would come after him and that this image would rule over the children of men wheresoever the children of men dwell. And that describes the children of Adam and basically the white world. Because when you look at this image and the governments that it represents, the kingdoms that it represents, they ruled over all of the core. There were always um, some white people outside of it who had come from that white world, but weren't under its direct rule. But these, this series of kingdoms had ruled over the entire white race at one time or another. When I say entire, I mean at least most of it. And and when we look at this um, this image, the Book of Nezar is the head of gold. In the Book of Nezar, the king of Babylon, for um, the entire time that Babylonia was at its peak of power, which is actually a very short time, perhaps about. 60 years because it it had fallen into um competition for the throne and internal struggle until the coming of the persians and persia actually had had um conquered babylon and took it over um that happened i think in 530 bc with the coming of cyrus the king of persia where the Nezar ascended as i said in 605 bc so the, the head of gold didn't last for very long at all. But the Book of Nezar's power reached all the way to Spain. And that's because he had conquered Tyre and made the Tyrians subject to him. And all of the Phoenician colonies in the Mediterranean were still held subject to the Phoenicians of Tyre, still had allegiance to the Phoenicians of Tyre. I could prove that in a discussion of the Persian Wars and, and demonstrate that sufficiently. And I'll mention it briefly, but when the Persians were preparing to invade Greece, the greater and more powerful portion of the Greeks were actually in Sicily and Italy. And the Persians understood, Xerxes understood, that he would not defeat the Greeks unless he took the Italian Greeks out of 
the equation. So Xerxes, who also ruled over Tyre and the Phoenicians, Xerxes had commanded the Phoenicians to invade Italy from Carthage just before he invaded Greece from Persia. And it was a two-pronged attack on the Greeks, but a lot of historians, mainstream academic historians, because they're really pretty damn dumb, dispute that there's a connection between the Phoenician, the Carthaginian invasion of Sicily and Italy and, and the Persian invasion of Greece. There's absolutely a connection. They were absolutely orchestrated for a specific reason so that the Persians could destroy the Greeks. And they still failed, but that was orchestrated and shows that the Phoenicians still had power and influence over their colonies in the Mediterranean. And they did. So the Book of Desert's might, his power extended throughout the Phoenician colonies all the way to Spain. and. Iberia, it was called after the Hebrew word because they were the Phoenicians were Hebrews. Well, well, he ruled what we would call the known world at that time. He didn't rule at all, but Italy at that time was really just a Greek outpost. It was really just um, Greek colonies that and Trojan colonies and Lydian colonies that were just coming into their formation. In, in the 7th century BC, 8th century BC. So the Etruscans were there and, and some of the Trojans were there for 400 years, but they weren't any kind of great power. So the Book of Desert ruled over most of the known world and, and he was replaced by the Persians and the Medes. Now the Persians and the Medes were really a coalition of two nations that were um, linked by intermarriage among their rulers and trade and, and a history of um, common oppression under the Babylonians and Assyrians who, who had ruled over the world before them. And, and it goes back further than that, but that's far enough. And the um, Herodotus actually says that Cyrus was a, um, was a son of the king of the of the daughter of the king of the Medes and his father was a Persian nobleman and he rose up to make the, the Medes subject to the Persians where the Persians were formerly under the king of the Medes. So that's how that worked. So we have a kingdom with two arms. The two arms of silver are the Persian, the Persians and the Medes and they're replaced by a trunk of brass which is the coming of the Greeks and the empire of Alexander, who's replaced by the legs of iron, which is the Roman empire with two legs. Eventually the Roman empire did have two legs, one in Rome and one in Constantinople. It, it's first each leg representing one of its capitals. The Byzantine empire was really just an extension of the Roman empire. So that, that's what Daniel is, is picturing, is drawing an image of in Daniel chapter 7. And because it interlocks with the, with the revelation, Daniel doesn't really date the duration of that image. 
But the duration of that image it is um, overall a, a time times and half a time. Now, Daniel does give that dating, and, and that is actually a, a date. Daniel does give that dating in, Revela- in Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, there's a sort of, and it's a vision that is very much the same as the vision in Daniel chapter 2. But instead of seeing an image of one beast with four different parts, in Daniel chapter 7, we see an image of four beasts. And those four beasts are the same beast. Okay? But in Daniel chapter 7, the, the, the series of empires is represented by four different animals, four different beasts with different attributes. And the last beast would have a horn growing out of its head. Daniel chapters 2 and 7, that horn growing out of its head would actually have dominion over the people of God, over it would wear out the saints and speak great words against the Most High and, and think to change times and laws. And in a nutshell, the, the image in Daniel 2 and the four beasts in Daniel 7 are the same. They are the series of world empires that ruled over all of the white world up until the fall of Rome. And they are represented in Revelation chapter 13 as the first beast of Revelation 13. Now, the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, which would rise up and change times and laws and wear out the saints of the Most High, that represents the Roman papacy. And the Roman papacy from the time of Justinian until the time of Napoleon, when Napoleon had the Pope arrested in 1789 and its power, the powers of the popes over the kings of Europe was broken at that point for the last time, was 1260 years from the time of Justinian and, and his changing of the laws and his um, coat his novelle constitutions, his new constitutions that the church had ruled under Roman law, had had used Roman law to rule Europe instead of God's law for those entire 1260 years. And that 1260 year period is exactly what Daniel means when he speaks about that same beast in Daniel chapter 7 a time, times, and a dividing of a time, three and a half times, a time in in the Hebrew Bible is 360. And three and a half times are 1260. So all of this fits together. And that second beast in Daniel chapter seven that would wear out the saints that would last three and a half times, that's the second beast of Revelation chapter 13 which also has attributes that perfectly match the history of the papacy. So we were ruled over a series of beast empires for 1260 years until the fall of Rome. 
And Revelation 13 dates that. And then we were ruled over by the papacy for 1260 years after the fall of Rome. And Daniel chapter 7 dates that. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, there's a promise that we are going to come out of this period of tribulation. And in the days of these kings, a kingdom will be set up, and, and I don't have it in front of me. And this is called Daniel's fifth kingdom. Let, let me get the um, precise wording from Daniel. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. And that even though the popes had often ruled in wickedness, that describes the advent of Christian Europe, which under the Germanic tribes, the, not all the Germans were Christians yet, but they would become Christians, would destroy all of those former empires and conquer all of those former empires. And that's what the Germanic kingdom did. And the kingdom really isn't Christianity. The kingdom is really the people, the Germanic, Anglo, and Saxon, and, and related people. That's the kingdom that would be set up. They are the people that destroyed the Roman and, and the Byzantine and, and replaced all of those former empires. They did it in different ways at different times. The, the Normans sacked Byzantium. The, the, um, the Turks helped weaken Byzantium and destroyed it from, from the east. But Byzantium, the hegemony in Europe of Byzantium was replaced and of Rome was replaced by Germanic kings and Germanic people. And they are Daniel's fifth kingdom. They are the ones that destroyed Rome. Often they, often they were part of the Byzantine Empire. But the prophecy isn't meant to explain every detail of history. It's only meant to show us who the people of God are. So if we want to know where Daniel's fifth kingdom is, we have to look at who destroyed the Roman Empire. Because that's what Daniel said that kingdom would do, and that that kingdom would last forever. It's still, it doesn't look that way today, because we're still in that period of punishment. But it was Germanic people in the form of, of the Germans and the English that came to rule the whole world from that time. It was a process of many centuries that it took to get to that point, but it did happen. And we have a promise that we are going to retain rule of the world, that even though we might be in our darkest hour, or we might think we're in our darkest hour, we will prevail and we will not be replaced. And if you go to Daniel's chapter seven, where it spoke about this same um, aspect of history from a different point of view, from a different language, we have very much the same problem 
very much the same situation. This horn which rose up, this what which I, I connect to the the papacy to change times and laws, change the calendar, change the laws which people live under universally through, throughout all of Europe. I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the ancient of days came, referring to Christ. And judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Well, that actually did happen. And then Daniel goes into this fourth beast, and the fourth beast was destroyed. And then Daniel goes into the ten horns, and, and the, the ten horns and the power of the papacy have now passed. And we're waiting for Daniel 26. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion, meaning the papacy, to consume and destroy it under the end. I believe that, pro that, that process for the most part is over. And we await Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. And, and that happened at the, the, the peak of Christianity under the dominion of the Protestant nations of Europe who, who controlled the whole world under the British Empire and, and the German empires of, of the 17 and 1800s. And that's where Daniel's prophecy comes to an end. And we have to pick up subsequent um, history in prophecy from the Revelation, from Revelation chapter 17. All of this, this is off the top of my head. It's extemporaneous. All of this is probably better explained in, in Christreich and, and in all of my other work on, on the prophets and the Revelation at my website. And I hope to actually next year write a new edition of Christrike, which includes a lot more material from Daniel than I had in the first edition. And what happens in uh, Revelation 17 then, where it picks up there? Well, well in Revelation chapter 17, it, it says that the, that the um, children of God shall basically hand their kingdom over to the beast. And once you understand the nature of the beast, when you look at the two beasts of Revelation chapter 13, when you look at the ancient empires of the world and how they came into being, when you look at what sustained the power of Rome, the Roman Caesars, the, the, um, the Byzantine kings, in Revelation chapter 13, it says the dragon gives its power to the beast. Who's the dragon? The dragon is world Jewry that always had the power of money and finance in its grips. It always has. And the great wars of history have really been because of that. And, and it could actually, uh, this was um, actually discussed by an article in the Barnes Review. 15 years ago and, and helped me understand it. Why did Alexander the Great 
want to go to India and conquer India. And why was he killed? Was he poisoned in Babylonia? And that's because the Jews, we could call them Jews, in Babylonia, the, they were really Edomite and Canaanite merchants in Babylonia, were controlling trade and the trade routes with India that Alexander the Great wanted to control. That's why they killed him in Babylonia. He wanted to control them because they were making great profits on the gold and silver exchange with the East, where the exchange rates were drastically different because the proportions of gold and silver available were drastically different. And they were making profits draining the and, and the, the people in the Mediterranean states of their gold. That's what they were doing. That's why Alexander had to go to India and conquer India to stop that drain on Europe and the Edomite and Canaanite merchants of Babylon were the ones making the profit. And that's why Alexander was killed, was poisoned in Babylonia. And that makes perfect sense once you understand a lot of the other aspects of the history of that time. To me, I read that in the Barnes Review 15 years ago, and it made perfect sense as soon as I read it. And I believe that it's at least for the most part true and does explain why Alexander left chains of fortresses throughout Sogdiana, Bactriana, modern-day Afghanistan and Iran, and, and tried to gain control over what was going on in Babylon and cut off the um, Canaanite Edomite merchants who ended up killing him. Alexander had um, historiographers that he had chroniclers traveling with him, recording his every move, and all of those writings disappeared. And we really don't know anything about Alexander except from historians who tried to piece together the story from a hundred years later. It was all deliberately hidden then. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, without a doubt, they deliberately hidden it. But then again, in, in Daniel chapter 11, and in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood to confirm and strengthen him. I will show thee the truth. I will show thee the truth. Behold. There shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength and through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. Now, Daniel wrote this as a prophecy. And when you understand when he wrote it and who he was writing about, it came out to be perfectly true. And Daniel could not possibly have lived long enough. And this was without a doubt written when it was said to be written. Because Daniel knew things about Babylon and about Persia that the Greeks never knew. But now we know from inscriptions that Daniel is true. But the Greek historians never knew the things about Babylon and Persia that Daniel had, had known. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion. 
And then it goes on and it explains um, a war between the king of the north and the king of the south that that is um, really very difficult to understand. But Daniel also prophesied, I believe it's in... um, Daniel chapter 10, maybe. He also prophesied of the wars between the Persians and the Greeks. That Daniel 11 is only one instance of of that prophecy, but there's another one that I'm looking for right now, and I can't really put my thumb on it. It's in Daniel chapter 8. There's another prophecy of the war between the Persians and the Greeks described as a battle between a ram and a goat, I believe. And there was all the prophecies I, of, of Christ in there as well, wasn't there? They were, they, that's why they knew exactly what time that to be expecting the Messiah. It was because of Daniel's yes, prophecies, wasn't it? I'm sorry. That's Daniel chapter 8. The ram and the goat is actually a prophecy of the the coming wars between the Greeks and the Persians. And in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel tells us exactly when it's going to happen. Hundreds of years, well, a hundred years maybe before it happened, that you would have four kings and then the fourth king would rise up and, and, and make war against the Greeks. But in Daniel chapter 9, you have a precise dating from the time of Daniel, from the time of the rebuilding of Jerusalem to the time of the coming of Christ. And that dating, I have studied at great length. And if you understand the chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah, and when the walls were rebuilt in Jerusalem, and when the city had begun to be rebuilt inside of the walls, because the walls were rebuilt first, you will understand that Daniel was precisely correct in his dating of the coming of Christ right to the year, right to within one year, we can determine that Daniel was correct. And I have papers on my, on, on at Christagenia that explain that alone. So what, what's next bill? The, the, what, what have we got left to come? The, 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 the bridegroom and the bride, the wedding supper and the day of the Lord. You think that's that's what's left to come well, now? The fall of Babylon is is what we anticipate. That the um, Revelation chapter seventeen draws further pictures of this this beast with ten horns and all this, and and we're told that the children of Israel would turn their kingdom over to the beast. That beast, you know, in Revelation thirteen, the dragon gives its power to the beast. All of these beasts have been created by the powers behind usury and and world trade and international finance. And that power has always historically been in the hands of the people who we call Jews today. But they weren't always called Jews. At one time, they were called Kenites. They were called Rephaim. They were called Canaanites. They were called Girgashites. They were called Hittites. They have always worn masks pretending to be other people. 
And ever since the time of Christ, they've been known as Jewry or as Jews. And they hate being identified as Jews. They try to identify themselves as Englishmen or as Americans or as Germans. And they try to normalize their evil behavior by making themselves appear as us. They've always done it. And they have used that they took over um, ancient Israel in the days of Herod. They tried to take it over in, in the days of the kings of Judah. And that's why it was destroyed. That's the story of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They tried to take over the kingdom of God and operate their own agenda behind the veneer of religious authority, the same way the Sadducees and the Pharisees were controlling ancient Judea, so that they could appear to be, Paul said, that, and Paul was speaking of the temple in Jerusalem when he said in his second epistle to the Thessalonians that Satan sat in the temple of God pretending to be God. And that's what's been happening. It's these same devils that have been the power behind every world power in history. They finance them. They prop up kings. They find weak kings to prop up through playing on their greed and pandering to their vices so that they could prop them up and control the world through them. And every great emperor has actually started out as a weak king who is susceptible to their manipulation. Practically every great emperor who has arisen, not everyone, but practically everyone who has arisen has been their tool. And that's how kings are made. The beasts were made by the dragon. And that's the story of scripture all the way through. And the occasional so, Michael that comes up and fights back against them. We had, in the age of liberty, we thought we were going to rule ourselves. We thought democracy was a good idea because we had suffered under kings and popes for 2,500 years. So we thought we'd rule ourselves. And look at the mess we've gotten into. It's been worse than when we were under kings and popes. We have handed our kingdom over to the beast when we allowed ourselves to become controlled by this central banking system that's operated by the same dragons who have been behind all of these world empires. In the end, we will realize that only God can rule over us, and that's the only way that we will have peace and be able to thrive as a people. That's part of the lesson. And history is a lot more complicated than, than what I'm laying out here. But that's the end lesson. 
because the first sin of the children of Israel collectively was to worship the golden calf, but their even more grievous sin is in um, 1 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 8, one or the other, where they demand an earthly king. As soon as they demanded an earthly king, it was all downhill from there. They lived in relative peace without an earthly king, even though they were punished at times for 400 years throughout the judges period. It's humanism, isn't it? It's saying we, we, we want a king of our own to rule over us. We want one of our own well, to right. rule over us. And we're not going to have peace until we finally realize that God is king. Once we realize God is king, Babylon is going to fall. We are promised that Babylon is going to fall. That is the point that we're waiting for. When you look at Revelation chapter 18, in, in Revelation chapter 17, okay, in Revelation chapter 12, this virgin with the 12 stars, flees into the wilderness. That represents the children of Israel, which over a period of a, of a thousand years had migrated from Egypt and Palestine into Europe and founded colonies in Europe and became Europeans. Phoenicia, Phoenix is the father of Europa, and the myth represents the truth the ancient Phoenicians actually being Israelites at one time, not throughout all times, but at one time. Well, well for, for actually for about 700, 800 years. Well, well, the golden age of Phoenicia was the age of the kings of Israel. The, the, um, In Revelation chapter 17, John goes back to the wilderness to see this woman again. And all of a sudden, she's a whore. She's not a virgin anymore. She's a whore married to the beast. And that represents the same Israelite people of Europe who are now fully engaged and basically under the control of world Jewry. We, with the emancipation of the Jews in Europe, we became the whores of world Jewry because gold became king. As it says in the Protocols of Zion, gold became king and we have all bowed to the power of money. We have all become the subjects of the power of gold, which is now king. So we thought in the age of liberalism that we were going to rule ourselves, and the, the Jew has come to rule us through the power of money. That's the boast of the protocols. That's what the scripture tells us, what Revelation tells us, that we would hand our kingdom over to the beast. That is how we've done it, and that is what whores do. They sell themselves for money. So when we see Revelation chapter 18 and this whore is described and all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, every white nation is tied up in this system of world finance that's controlled by the Jews. 
then we see the point where Babylon falls. And once Babylon falls, it's described as a place of merchandising. The merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn for her. Because that's mystery Babylon in the Bible, is this system of world finance, world politics, world social values, world religious values. If, if, if you really inter interrogate any Christian today, any mainstream Christian, or any mainstream American or European who really doesn't call himself a Christian, they have the same values. And those values are not Christian at all. Those values are the values of Jewish pop culture has become the world religion. And Jewish pop culture dictates to all men what is right and what is wrong. So all of a sudden, gay marriage is cool. And you can't pick on trannies. You're a bully. And you have to accept everybody of every race. Because that's what Jewish pop culture dictates. Every government and religion in the West goes along with it. So who's God? Is Yahweh your God? Or is Mystery Babylon your God? Well, to most people, Mystery Babylon is their God. They're worshiping the beast. When Babylon falls, we're hopeless until Babylon falls. Whether we know this or not, whether we have this knowledge or not, we're hopeless until Babylon falls. Then we hear the sign, the, the, the sign Babylon's described as the system of world commerce in Revelation chapter 18, and we're told it's going to fall, and we hear that fall in Revelation chapter 19, and once Babylon falls, and we are, we are then we hear the, the I'm sorry, Revelation 18.5, once Babylon falls, then we hear the call, come out of her, my people, lest you suffer her punishments. Revelation chapter 18, verse 5. Once we come out of Babylon, once we separate ourselves from this world system of commerce that's on its way to a fall and everything that it stood for, diversity and, and the acceptance of sexual deviancy and all of these other actual sins, once we separate from that, then we will be given the opportunity, as it is promised in Revelation chapter 18, upon the fall of Babylon, to reward her double as she has rewarded you. In other words, we, at that time, will take part in what comes next, which is Revelation chapter 19, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb, and where Christ has promised that his people will have a role in destroying all of his enemies. Then when you get to Revelation chapter 20, you have the kingdom of heaven on earth and the city of God descend from earth. That's what we have to look forward to. Revelation chapter 20 is actually an overview of what had preceded. Revelation chapter 21 is the 
kingdom of heaven on earth. So we're at this point in Revelation chapter 17. We're at this point in history where our kingdom, we ourselves have handed our kingdom over to the beast. In Britain, that happened with the um, the glorious revolution and, and the coming of um, William III of Orange and the passing of, of the, um, the, the creation of the Bank of England. Yeah. When the Jews took control of England. And in America, it was forestalled until the Federal Reserve Act. It almost happened with the first and second banks of the United States. And then Andrew Jackson threw the bankers out of the temple. But we had the Civil War, which I believe was a direct result of Andrew Jackson's throwing the bankers out of the temple. But the Jews had to create the Civil War in order to regain control of what they had lost. But even Lincoln who was probably the worst president we've ever had. He was an absolute tyrant and enabled the Jews to have the Civil War. Even Lincoln wouldn't turn the treasury over to the devils and issue greenbacks, which is why they killed him. And even with that, it still took them another 50 years to get a central bank in the United States with the Federal Reserve Act. And Woodrow Wilson, who was a complete sellout. But he was a sellout even before he was elected. They had him in his pocket in their pockets. Every great president, every great emperor, every great king who ruled over other kings, who sought to build an empire, was actually working for this dragon that has given its power to every beast. Beast being a system of men ruling over other men, of nations ruling over other nations, world empires. The Jews, the people we know as Jews today have been behind every single one of them from the dawn of time. So would you say uh, Andrew Jackson was he had, had the spirit of St. Michael? Because I'm sort of thinking, you know, well, what we should do is, we should, you know, we should, we should look for people that have the spirit of St. Michael and support them and, and, and you know, have faith that uh, our time will come in the end. Well, well you know, Andrew Jackson, what was a, what was a um, crucial factor in the Indian Wars, destroying the Indians, running the Cherokees out of, out, out on the Trail of Tears, where they belong. He ran them. He, he was one of the foremost leaders of, of that time who, who destroyed the, the native savages and tried to eliminate them from the lands that whites were settling in. And, you and he also the ran, out of the temple. ran... He also ran the Jews out of the temple. So I think Andrew Jackson did a lot of good if we follow his example. Because I heard somebody saying, oh, it all seems a bit hopeless. You know, there's nothing we can do. And, you know, we've just got to wait. And, and I was saying, well, no, it's not like that. Because you look for the, the people that have the spirit of St. Michael and, and you support them. 
and you support well, well, them. Well, right. We, we have to. What we have to. There's an Elijah message for the last day to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And that is going to precipitate the return of Christ. And that is in the words of Christ, and it's in the words of the prophet Malachi. But Christ made a specific example of that in the Gospels, that that is what would happen. And that, that Elijah message, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, is a racial message. It's the racial message of covenant theology that today is only represented by Christian identity. That's the message that we have to push. That is the Elijah message for the last days. It's going to grow. It has to grow. It is growing. It is growing. I think Christian identity is bigger than it's ever been before. It's growing all the time. I mean, more, more and more people are aware of it. Oh, that's our job. Well, that's what we've done with the series. That is the only message. It's the only message. It's the only Christian message the Jews fear. It's the only one. They don't fear paganism. They love paganism. They love hedonism. They don't fear mainstream Christianity. They control it. We are the only bearers of the true Christian message of covenant theology. The promises which God had made, which all are true, which will all come true, and many of which have, of course, come true. That's how we, we have the assurance that the rest of them are going to come true. We are the only bearers of the true meaning of the gospel of Christ. A lot of the churches have this part of it pretty good or that part of it pretty good. And then they screw it all up when they let a nigger into the door. They throw it or a fag and it all goes out the window. So we are the only ones who teach the truly Catholic interpretation of scripture. The truly orthodox interpretation of scripture. And it's based on reason. It's based on reason and logic and, and looking at the facts. And then you use your reason and your logic. You realize that it's all true. And that's what gives you faith in God's promise. That That's where the faith comes from, is from applying reason and logic to looking at the facts. It's not some blind faith in something. It's it's a it's a faith that's based on, on the reality of the way that the world is. And that's, that's what you learn through learning about this stuff, looking through the Bible and, and seeing how it applies to history and getting this worldview. And and that's why we have that's why we have faith that these promises will come true. That's what the faith is. It's all based on on reason and logic. It's not some fantasy. You know, I I, I just don't understand I find it so hard to get to get to grips with you. you. Point these facts out to people and they think you're talking talking about having faith in something. And you're like, "Well, no, this is reality. This is the facts of history that bear this out." This isn't talking about some some religious idea when I'm saying that the, the Jews are Edomites, they're Canaanites. That, that's facts of history. It's not, um, you know, just, just blind faith in something. It's reality. Well, well, Paul says that faith comes from hearing the word of God. And when he says hearing the word of God, he doesn't just mean believe in Jesus. 
and everybody should believe in Jesus and they have faith because they're told to believe in Jesus. Screw that. That's bullshit. Hearing the word of God is actually going back and searching the scriptures as Christ told his adversaries and his disciples to do again and again, search the scriptures. They say this, search the scriptures. They say that. The Baroians, the people of Baroia, were credited for searching the scriptures to see if Paul's words were true. Faith comes through study. And, and these things, I sat when I first heard them. I didn't just believe them. I sat and studied for 12 years before I started Christogenia. I've been doing Christogenia now for 10 years. And over 22 years, my faith has not been shaken that I developed over the first three or four years of study, which is what it took for me to be persuaded by it. It just gets stronger so not, because the more you see, the more your faith gets stronger because the more you see and the more you learn, the more it gets reinforced. Well, well I don't do what I do in spite of my, my studies, and I sure as hell don't do it to make money. That, that, that's, this is the last thing I would do for that. I do what I do because I have, over all those years of study, developed more and more and more conviction through study that what I'm saying is true. And I do what I do to show other people that truth. Other white people. Because I don't care about anybody else. Everybody else can and will go to hell. Hell not being a place where they suffer forever. Hell being a place where they no longer exist. Well, I think I can speak for uh, all of us in saying we're, we're very, very grateful that you have that you do do what you do, Bill. I mean, it's, it's obviously a, a, a calling and a vocation, or if that's the word. Very, very grateful for you uh, doing what you do and, and all the research you put in and all the time you put in waking up, you know, just making people aware of these truths in a scholarly way. Well, we can only try. I don't know if there's going to be a Bible Basics Part 12. <laughs> there might be. If, if, you, if you want one, there will be. Um, I, I don't know how many questions this seri series is really going to raise. I, I have seen some questions on um, Rosette Delacroix's YouTube pages where she's reproducing these. But most of those questions come from bastards who are trying to challenge what I'm saying based on emotional factors. And, and they don't even merit discussion as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's not worth, uh, not worth really entering, even entering into a dialogue with them. What is the, what is the point? What does it gain? It's just a waste right, of time. Right, there is no point. There is no point because the scripture says that a bastard shall not enter the congregation of the Lord. And, and because Paul of Tarsus says that if you don't suffer chastisement, chastisement is more than just punishment. It's punishment and correction. If you're not corrected in line with the word of God, then you're a bastard. That's what Paul says. If, if you don't 
go through that process, you're a bastard and not a son. So no, it's not worth it's not worth discussing this with anybody who would dispute with the word of God. It's just not worth it. You're getting nowhere. You may as well argue with a Jew. Casting pearls before swine, isn't it? Dogs and Absolutely. swine. So other than that, there have been a couple of questions that I hope also to answer with, with Rosette in, in a future interview, maybe next month or the month after. But but um I think she wants you first. But but Yeah, I've got to take I, a I week off if, and then do an interview with, it, with her, I think. If you want to start saving notes and maybe we could do a Bible basics part 12 down the road when we do get enough questions or, or enough places to go, it's everybody has a different perspective. Everybody's going to have some different um, ideas and questions on various topics. It's hard in a series like this to address them all. You, you can't address them all because you never know what other people are thinking based on what they've read or heard or studied. So it, it's... Sometimes difficult to guess ahead of time what has to be answered. That would be that would be good. We could take it because I'm going to need. I've got to have a week off in a couple of weeks' time, and I, I want to take a week's break before doing an interview with Rosette. So maybe in a you know three weeks' time, four weeks' time, something like that, and we'll have some questions to sure. answer. Yeah, we'll see what comes up. We'll see what comes up. And thank you, Sven. Thank you, Bill. Praise Christ. God bless. <laughs>